This is Hubonk. I'm Joe Salvadri. Welcome to Hubonk, the podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. How should we greet the news that on November 15th, 2022, the world's population reached 8 billion people? For generations, our concerns about the growing world population were based on dire predictions, such as those of biologist Paul Ehrlich, whose 1971 highly influential book, Population Bomb, bluntly asserted that, quote, you can't continue to grow forever on a finite planet, unquote. Going further to contend that, quote, the biggest problem we face is the continued expansion of the human enterprise, unquote. However, 50 years later, with a global population twice that of 1971, the availability of essential resources as measured in their real price decline has steadily increased. Indeed, by any measure, the imminent scarcity suggested by a finite planet seems to be moving further away beyond the horizon of our world of global abundance. What accounts for the disconnect between the former certainty that population growth is unsustainable and the observable reality that resources have never been more plentiful? My guest today is Marion Tupi, editor of humanprogress.org, senior fellow at the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity, co-author of the Simon Abundance Index, and co-author of the recently released book, Superabundance, the story of population growth, innovation, and human flourishing on an infinitely bountiful planet. Mr. Tupi will share with us how, where, and when mankind broke from those constraints that naturally bind the populations of all other living organisms. He will explain the implications and the power of the idea that our future prosperity lies in the unlimited resources of human ingenuity. Contrary to the ubiquitous narrative of human population unsustainability, Mr. Tubi will describe how a finite planet in the hands of an increasing number of human minds creates the potential for an infinitely abundant future. When I return, I'll be joined by scholar and author, Marion Tubi. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi, and I'm now pleased to be joined by the editor of humanprogress.org, senior fellow at the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity, and co-author of the Simon Abundance Index at Cato, and co-author of the recently released book, Superabundance, the story of population growth, innovation, and human flourishing on an infinitely bountiful planet, Marion Tupi. Welcome to Hubwonk, Marion. Thank you very much for having me. Well, I've been uh, excited for this uh, conversation. I'm a big fan of your work. A uh, big fan of uh, human progress, um, and uh, for what it's worth, now it's the holiday season. I'm giving your earlier book, uh, "The Global Trends Every Smart Person: Ten Global Trends Every Smart Person Should Know." I'm giving them as gift Christmas gifts. So uh, I'll lay that out there for our listeners to know that uh, this is not a, a an unbiased uh, uh, um, in- interpretation of of your work. Thank um, you. Thank you. So let's let's start with your book. Uh, it's super abundance. I think it's both a provocative, perhaps uh, maybe a confusing title for some. Let's start with um, two two concepts right in the title: super abundance and the fact that we live on an infinitely bountiful planet. So, what is super abundance? Super abundance has a technical meaning. Uh, we measure abundance. We don't measure scarcity. We measure abundance in a sense of how much more stuff can people buy per hour of labor. And um, uh, the, the an abundance can grow at different rates. So in, in, in our framework, we always ask, 
how fast is the population growing and what is happening to abundance uh, essentially the, the 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 view that we are attacking is that with increase of population things are go going to become less abundant and looking at hundreds of different commodities going back all the way to 1850 in some cases we see that all of them are increasing in abundance. Nothing is becoming less abundant. Everything is becoming more abundant. But when abundance is growing at lower rate than population growth, we just call it abundance. When, when, when abundance is growing at a faster rate than population, we call that superabundance. So if the population of the world or population of a country is growing, say, at 2%, but abundance is growing at 3 or 4%, we call that superabundance because abundance is increasing at a faster pace than population. And that's important because if population is growing at 2%, but superabundance is growing, or, or abundance is growing at 3 or 4%, that tells us, that gap tells us that humans are producing more than they are consuming. That tells us that every new human being that comes into the world um, comes not only with an empty stomach, but also with a brain capable of increasing wealth uh, for, for everybody else. Well, I can hear in our audience already a gasp is saying, okay, listen, uh, are, are you confronting uh, reality? Uh, we all are either professional or amateur economists. The premise there is infinite demand, limited resources. How could it be uh, that the more people we have, the more stuff we're consuming, given we have a finite planet, we're hurling through space on this big blue marble. How is it that the more stuff, more people we have and the more stuff each of those people consumes means there's more stuff to be consumed. How, how is that intuitively? It's intuitively difficult to comprehend, but, but what is the basis? How do you measure that we're getting more abundant? Right, so we measure everything in time prices, meaning we ask, we, we don't measure in dollars and cents, which also allows us to transcend the problem of inflation. And it also allows us to transcend the problem of intertemporal comparisons, meaning an hour of labor today is the same as it is in China. So you can do it across countries, but it's also the same as it was in 1850. If you are spending an hour at work, then you know it's the same as if you did it in 1800s. Um, and um, and uh, uh, so, so we use these time prices. How long does it take you work in order to buy something? If 50 years ago, it took you an hour to buy a gallon of milk, but today it's down to 10 minutes, um, you know, that means that you have become better off. Um, so, so I just want to, you know, that, that's a very important uh, concept that's foundational to your work here so that we want to account for, let's say, the difference between nominal and real prices, right? That's how we adjust for inflation. What what does uh, something cost today that, you know, 1950, what it would cost then in, in those dollars? So that's inflation. But you're solving for something more important, which is uh, if we become more productive, uh, we, we need, let's say, uh, we need to spend less time working. Um, if we need to spend 10 minutes uh, a day working to, to meet our needs, whereas we in the past needed eight hours, we've become substantially wealthier. Even if those products stayed the same, we'd be wealthier. But because those products perhaps are uh, less expensive, we're doubly or um, you know, exponentially more wealthy. Do I have that about right? That's, that's correct. So uh, uh, the, the problem with nominal and real prices go well beyond just adjusting them for inflation. That, that is a problem on its own. Nobody trusts the inflation, st inflation statistics. Even people at BLS understand that the inflation statistics are 
um, deeply problematic. Everybody understands that. I'm not some sort of a conspiratorial guy that, you know, the government is lying outright. It's just very difficult to get it right. You know, what exactly is the level of inflation, how much you weigh different items to each other, etc. So we move beyond inflation by not looking at not looking at uh, dollars and cents. We look at time, which is constant for regular uh, human interactions. And it is independent of human perception. And our is the same, no matter no matter how you look at it. Um, now, the the other problem with nominal and real prices is that productivity um, shows itself not only in the prices of goods and services, but also in wages. So, to get a sense of how fast you are getting, uh, how far you are getting in life, uh, to get a sense of uh, uh, of 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 standards of living, you have to account for both. The fact that wheat, as a result of productivity gains in agriculture, is getting cheaper, so the prices are declining, but the wages are also increasing at the same time. Right? The 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 the, the farmer who is collecting the wheat, for example, may be earning um, you know one hundred and twenty, hundred fifty thousand dollars driving a very sophisticated machine, as opposed to a peasant. Three three hundred years ago, who had a uh, who had a sickle and maybe a you know whatever. Um, so, time prices are this beautiful way of putting together both gains in productivity, goods, and also wages. And it's by dividing the nominal price of a good in a store, a loaf of bread, by the nominal hourly wage, um, that 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 you get that you get that time price. Um, so. So I think that's that's a that's a very important that's a very important thing. Can can I also again many of our uh, listeners are not schooled in economics, but uh, I think a very powerful mechanism that everyone should understand is the price mechanism. Um, you use this price mechanism to determine the scarcity of a product. Um, I know in, in the first day of economics, often uh, rhetorically the uh, uh, the teacher will say, "Why is it that?" water that we need is vital for our life. We can go on less than a day without it. Uh, that's free, uh, but gold uh, that we don't need at all, uh, even to fill our fillings in our mouth, uh, that's that's a very, very expensive commodity. Therefore, there's really no relationship between price and necessity. Rather, price indicates something else. Uh, and your book, it, you assert, it indicates relative scarcity. Share with our listeners what that concept is. Well, we, we we try to get away from measuring scarcity in a sense that because scarcity is infinite. Uh, in fact, uh, I think it's in chapter three we say we are not going to measure scarcity because human desires are are infinite. Things are always going to be scarce re, uh, relative to human desires, but um, but we can measure abundance. We can we can measure how much better off we are today as opposed to yesterday. Uh, in terms of if we are if you are comparing apples with apples, so a pound of beef today is essentially the same as it was in 1850. And by looking at this time price, what we can say is that for the same amount of work that a blue collar worker needed to work in 1850 to get a pound of beef, he can now get eight pounds of beef. So in that sense, in terms of beef abundance. He or she is uh, eight times better off. 
Um, so, so that's how we are going. That's how we try to uh, get around the issue of 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 scarcity. And of course, scarcity is relative because it, you know, whether things are scarce or not, also very much depends on what is what is happening to a price mechanism that 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 you have you have said. When things suddenly become more expensive, human ingenuity jumps into it and uh, starts lowering those prices in a variety of ways. For example, if uh, oil suddenly quadruples in price, as it did in the early 1970s, people start producing cars that consume less oil. The other thing that you can do is to substitute something for something else. So instead of using oil in order to power our electric generating uh, 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 facilities, we can switch to natural gas. Um, um, the the other thing, so so the any, anyway, uh, I, I realized that there was a question uh, in the previous uh, segment that I didn't answer, and that is that that why is it that people don't understand um, uh, this 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 business with bountiful planet as opposed to a highly restricted planet? And I think that the issue here, and it really ties to resources very closely, is that. Is that is that it is true that um, the planet only has a finite number of atoms on it, atoms of zinc or copper or whatever. But the value that you can derive from those atoms is potentially infinite. Hence, the word "infinitely bountiful planet." Uh, if you take something as simple as a grain of sand, uh, we started. We realized 4,000 years ago that you could turn it into glass, which people used for glass beads and later uh, jars and window panes. But today we are using glass in microchips and uh, and and uh, fiber optic cables. So here you can see how with every step of the way, the value derived from sand has increased massively. And in 200 or 2,000 years, goodness knows what we are going to be using sand for. So that's the fundamental difference between the finitude of atoms, which is how most people perceive the world, we have a finite number of atoms, but economists look at what can you do with those atoms? And the reality is by recombining them and combining them and recombining them, you can actually create an, an infinite amount of value. I, I love where we're going with this. Let's take a step back and talk about, let's say, what the context of this the, these assertions, or perhaps the, um, the water we're swimming in is this sort of, um, uh, general notion that we believe we are on a on a uh, finite planet that that conservation is is, is essential essential component of, of long term survival, uh, but that's all sort of uh, in the with the backdrop I know from my sort of history of uh, economics um, uh, education that Thomas Malthus uh, more than a hundred years ago essentially looked at the world and said, look. Um, uh, we're growing exponentially. Uh, we each uh, have two kids, and uh, you know the world is growing rapidly. And the ability to support those people are going, let's say, geometrically. We 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 don't uh, have twice as many fields to support twice as many or four times as many people. Uh, eventually, we're going to run out of resources to feed everyone. Um, fast forward to modern times. Uh, your book uh, quotes uh, quite quite liberally the uh, the famous. I think he's still around, Paul Ehrlich, who uh, wrote the population bomb. Uh, who you know saw I don't know six billion people I don't know how many people were there now uh, there then uh, said look uh, we're at, at the precipice of, of global starvation uh, we need to do something about it uh, set our, the stage for our listeners what what is or was the world of of 
of um, of economic scarcity. Why did we think that we weren't on an infinitely abundant planet? Yes, so Malthus uh, wrote his famous essay uh, on the principle of population in 1798, so over 200 years ago. And uh, basically, he was claiming that uh, the population growth was always going to outpace uh, resources, resource growth or innovation, if you will, and therefore there was going to be starvation. Uh, in this book, we, we, I think we, we do a good job in disproving that, showing that everything is becoming more abundant. Um, most historians would agree that, um, or most economists would agree that, that Malthus was a decent historian because he described the world as it was up till 18th century. Uh, was that essentially, uh, wh whenever you had a massive population expansion, at some point, um, it would run up against um, against resource constraints. Or so maybe, or, or maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe um, with increased number of people, uh, you started expanding the agricultural enterprise until you started using marginal land, land which was producing less food, etc. And uh, you know, you, so you have good earth, you have worse earth, you have very poor earth. And uh, and at some point, um, you know, th there were so many people, and they started using all this marginal land. Maybe there was climatic change or bad harvests. Uh, the harvests collapsed for a couple of years, and starvation ensued. Right, and I, I think that that is a generally a good way to sort of think about it, because if you look at population. Um, um, uh, around the world prior to 1800s, it really did go through these through these cycles. Um, you know, in um, uh, at the time of Caesar Augustus or Christ, there was about 400 million people in the world. You know, then 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 it, then it grows and then it falls, then it grows and then it falls, etc. But um, but uh, but it's only in uh, in 1800 that you get to the first billion, and since 1800 we have reached eight billion, and yet everything in terms of food and other resources is getting cheaper. So that means that something profound has happened in the 18th century. And in fact, I would argue that in fact we show it in the book that even while Malthus was still writing his book things were already changing uh, as the population of England expanded massively in the 18th century. Prices of wheat and flour were actually decreasing, uh, which is very similar to actually what happened to Marx. Uh, Marx was writing at the time about immiseration of the working classes. And by the time he died, it was undeniable that actually um, working class wages were increasing. So it's just this kind of weird symmetry where uh, people who thought that they've discovered some sort of laws of history um, were proven wrong even before they died. So they were the laws of history until that time. And then there was an inflection point. We uh, maybe call it the Industrial Revolution. I don't know if you would characterize that as the sort of the, the, what, what would be the inflection point. But again, bringing to modern time, Paul Ehrlich, I think, was a, um, a biologist. He was sort of taking the wisdom, not of, of, of the centuries, but rather of, of organisms, whether it's uh, yeast or or bacteria or mice or any sort of rabbits in uh, in Australia um uh, organisms reproduce until they run out of food and uh, and die off why would uh, human beings be any different uh, essentially i think that was his foundation for his his observation that we're uh, you know we're in for a worse yeah. time the, the 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 dividing line here between economists and biologists is actually quite staggering 
even people whom I greatly admire, like Brad Weinstein and his wife Heather uh, Haling, uh, they are biologists and they are fully uh, on board with this um, uh, with this Malthusian stuff, uh, writing in 2021, 2022. And, um, and it, it's a very interesting thing. They basically, they don't understand or they seem not to comprehend that human beings truly are fundamentally different from other animals. We are not like um, rats or yeast in a petri dish. We are we are intelligent uh, animals um, able to plan forward um, and very importantly to innovate. It is not that animals cannot use tools. Some of them can, uh, monkeys and sticks and uh, things like that. Um, but you don't see them innovating over their lifetimes or over you know long periods of time. Once they have figured out how to use a stick uh, to shove it in a uh, heap of ants uh, and things like that, uh, they don't go on then uh, discovering new ways of getting to ants and eating them. So human beings are fundamentally different. We are intelligent creatures. Uh, we have the theory of mind and things like that, and and that means that we can we can we can innovate. Um, and I think that's a that, that's a that's a very and 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 we've shown that. So how do we get around the problem of Malthusian scarcity? Well, um, at some point in the 19th century, we discovered guano, and we discovered that we are able to take essentially bat and bird poop and uh, fertilize our fields with it, which was high in uh, potassium and nitrogen. And then when that became expensive, um, uh, Haber and Bosch, uh, discovered uh, creation of artificial or synthetic uh, fertilizers, ammonia, which is derived from natural gas. And it is in this way that we are able to produce more and more food on fewer and fewer acres of land, which will also allow us to turn a lot of land back over to nature. Um, and, and therefore, we can have in the future both an environmentally clean and sound planet as well as plentiful food. I want to tip our hat to the the sort of the bravery of some of the intellectuals, let's say on our side of the uh, continuum that um, uh, one comes to mind is Julian Simon, who made a bet with Paul Ehrlich, the, the biologist, the Julian Simon being a, an economist, saying, look, um, if it's true that we're running out of uh, everything as as the population goes up, uh, theoretically, as as the, the next pound of a material becomes more scarce and more dear, it ought, its price ought to go up. Uh, so they made a bet and they said, look, uh, you pick you pick the five uh, items you think are going to become more scarce and therefore more expensive. We'll make a bet. Let's meet in 10 years um, and let's see what happens. I think your book in many ways is a sort of an expansion of this, this bet, this argument, this proof uh, uh, that we are not bound by some Malthusian constraint. So share with our listeners that bet and uh, the implications for your work. Well, yes, um, as you implied, the, um, the 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 courage of Julian Simon is is very important to understand to place him in time. You see, Julian Simon was going against the zeitgeist in the 1970s and the 1980s, especially in the 1960s and the 70s. This is important because the entire world was enamored with Paul Ehrlich's population bomb and believed that. Uh, overpopulation was going to be a problem. And Julian Simon looked at the numbers and uh, said, this is not going to happen. And, and the bet, as you said, was for $1,000 of five metals, which early chose, uh, tungsten, chromium, tin, zinc, something else. 
And uh, in, in 10 years' time, the uh, inflation-adjusted price fell by 36%. And even though the population of the world obviously expanded massively, and Ehrlich had to send him a check for $576. So yes, he's certainly the intellectual giant of his work we are working. But also, we think that we are um, not necessarily improving, perhaps improving on the bet, in a sense that we think that time price is more important than than um, uh, than um, than real price, which Paul Paul and and Simon worked with with real prices, but we think that time price is actually um, more important because it takes into account also the productive gains uh, in wages that real prices ignore. I think that's a very important point. This this time price concept again we've touched on it earlier. But what I found uh, profound is again you you expanded on this by by you have in, in your book eighteen uh, data sets which talk about other uh, commodities because I, one can anticipate a critique of um, of the Simon Ehrlich bet which is they took the wrong five items perhaps or they took too short of a time frame so let's take all kinds of items you know that people from all economic strata use from all over the world. And let's expand it many, many more years. And your book does a fine job of that. There's lots of data, lots of lots of charts that that, that, uh, that illustrate this. Um, what I think is most profound about it, this- and I, Which is not to say that there cannot be temporary reversals. In fact, right now, prices are increasing at a faster pace than wages, which has not been the case for 40 years. So commodities are actually in, uh, increasing in price relative to wages. but Therefore, the more numbers you have and the longer time periods you take, uh, the, the better for your research. Now, our our sort of golden rule was, look at all of these data sets that are out there and choose the ones with most commodities over as long period of time as possible um, and, and, and see where it lands. In other words, only then run it through the program and see what the numbers are. But we always started with that goal in mind. And when you get to places like uh, 1850 and you look at blue collar wages and you see that things are generally falling, uh, things have generally fallen by, you know, somewhere between 97 and 99% in terms of time price, so instead of 100 minutes to buy something, you now have to pay one minute to buy something. Um, that tells us that there is a really a long-term uh, continuous contained drop in prices, increased productivity, increased welfare. I think what's powerful about that is in this current world where uh, inequality or equity are, are sort of household names that describe the, all the problems of the world, I think when we're comparing our condition now to say Elon Musk or Bill Gates, they've got hundreds of billions and I've got what I've got. That, that seems for me to engender for many people envy or resentment. If we compare our lot in life, the you know, the, the Joes and the Marians of 1850, and we compare what we do, how much we work, and what we can buy with that work we are rich beyond our wildest dreams. I think that engenders a sense of, of, of gratitude. You know, is that what you were looking for with this, with this, uh, these time series where you see what one average, let's say either working class, unskilled, I think, and blue collar, I, I forget all the different metrics, but it was a lot of unskilled, skilled and upskilled um, that you compared so that everybody was accounted for. Share, share more about this sort of intertemporal com comparison versus you know, contemporary comparisons. 
Yes. Uh, well, the, the fundamental thing to understand, and Don Boudreau has written about this, the, the economist from, uh, from GMU, that 100 years ago, you could spot a rich man walking down the street versus a poor man just by the way they dressed. Um, a rich man could afford a suit. A uh, poor man would be working, you know, walking around in work overalls or whatever. You, you could, there was a visible difference. The difference in how Elon Musk can dress and I can dress is on, on our massively diverse incomes has shrunk. The, the inequality in clothing has shrunk to almost invisible, if at all. Similarly with food, rich people simply ate very different things than poor people did. Pe poor people sub subsided, uh, um, uh, survived on, you know, bread, water, whatever, very little access to meat, etc. Uh, maybe rich people today can still get their fill of caviar, which I cannot. But the reality is that the inequality in terms of their richness of food and our richness of food has also shrunk dramatically. And all over the world, different types of inequalities are disappearing. Because progressives are so heavily fixated on income inequality, they ignore inequalities like child mortality in poor countries and rich countries has shrunk. Um, uh, life expectancy inequality between rich and countries has shrunk heavily. Uh, there are all sorts of other inequalities, access to information, um, access to clean water, uh, where there was a massive gap and which have now declined. So we, we, we I, I think that we are doing ourselves a disservice by basically conceding to the progressives the, the high moral ground by by helping them to focus just on income inequality. There are other inequalities which have almost disappeared. Now, um, yes, so in the book, I maintain that depending on your uh, your your venture point or, or your or your vantage point, rather, vantage point, you can decide whether to be miserable and envious or whether you can be grateful and happy. If you compare today, where we are today in America in 2022, and you compare it with any other period in the past, then uh, then we can see massive progress among along most, if not all, dimensions of human progress or human well-being. And therefore, you know the 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 the, the, the feeling that should fill you is one of gratitude. If, however, you compare America in 2022 with a utopia where everything is working out for everyone everywhere at all times then the 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 only emotion can be one of disappointment and and resentment uh, that the society is deeply imperfect and that and and that is also connected to 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 envy um if you compare yourself only to the richest people in the world today you know how the kardashians live then you're envious um, but but if you compare yourself with 99.9% of the people who ever live, the the alternative emotion is gratitude. And um, it's again, it's not entirely clear why, um, uh, or rather, it, it is clear why. But 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 you have a lot of control over whom you compare yourself to. I mean, if you compare yourself to a tall, incredibly handsome man with bulging muscles uh <laughs> with a hot girlfriend uh flying around on a on a jet then um on a private jet then obviously you're going to be miserable 
Um, but but perhaps you should be comparing yourself to other people, perhaps even to yourself from five or ten years ago, and see how much progress you have made in your life. In, indeed, indeed, that's a as a positive way to look at it. But I'll say, you know, for those uh, listeners who dismiss our concern that uh, um, Malthus and Ehrlich are their views are uh, alive and well, there there seems to be a sense both globally, uh, politically, and within our culture that. More people is bad, meaning uh, we we know the disastrous policies within China, the one child policy. I don't know how many tens or hundreds of millions of people don't exist because of that constraint. Four hundred million. Four hundred million. Four hundred million. That's more than the population of the United States don't exist because of that one policy. Um, but also, um, you know, again, I, maybe I, it's the circles I run in. But when uh, someone's having uh, more kids or lots of kids. Uh, it seems implied that they're bringing them both into a world that's getting worse and that the fact that they're having children or many children is making a bad situation even worse, meaning we're we're telling young people that children are part of the problem. Ergo, you ought not to have them. It, it seems that, you know, for all the good work of your book and the observations that that child is very likely to be doing better than his parents. Uh, in a more abundant world, we still seem to think things are getting worse and those kids are putting gas on a fire. What are your views on that? Well, I think it's the height of insanity. I mean, if you're just looking at um, the environment, for example, aside from the fact, let's put aside all the good things that are happening on the environmental side. More fish that we consume are aquaculture fish rather than wild. Uh, we have record number of uh, natural reserves in the world where where animals can roam freely. We have uh, record amount of oceans um, uh, or or acreage or square mileage of oceans which is protected from human exploitation. Uh, we have record number of trees in the United States. We haven't had this many trees in in two hundred years. Uh, there are all sorts of things which are improving on the environmental front. But ultimately. Um, if you don't have human beings in the world, then then what does it matter whether the environment in the world is good or bad? Um, if if the if the world is not there to be perceived through human senses, then it might as well not exist. It's irrelevant because the only entity, only intelligent uh, entity capable of appreciating the trees and the ocean and the marine life, etc., is the human brain. Animals don't care about the natural beauty of the world. They care about eating and having sex and not being eaten by other animals. And so I, I but I do see that you can't open a newspaper, especially progressive newspaper like the New York Times or Washington Post or The Atlantic without constantly seeing a barrage of articles claiming that we are cancer on the planet, that bringing a child into the world is an act of uh, uh, selfishness, that their future is going to be bad. Look, uh, the work that I do uh, does not guarantee that everything is going to work out. But uh, if you if you if you just take the last two years of COVID and put it on the side, this is the best time to be alive. Um, and that's not just that's not just true for the West. It's also true for other parts of the world, even in Africa, where the GDP per capita is much higher than it was say fifty years ago. Um, whether you are a woman. A girl born into the world, you have many more opportunities than your mothers and your and your grandmothers. If you are a gay boy born into the world, uh, your chances in life are much better than they were before. If you are an atheist in the world, your 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 chances of succeeding in life are much better th than it was when when religion ruled the roost. Um, um, if you are an indigent person, there is a record amount of money to make sure that you don't have to starve or freeze. 
Um, so, uh, you know, if, if you simply enjoy life, uh, you have many more years to do so than our ancestors did. So there's just so much positive news and, um, um, and 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 again, it's it's very discouraging to see that that the so so few people understand it or appreciate it. Uh, partly, it's the education system. Uh, we no longer teach economics or history to our high schoolers, um, let alone economic history. Very few people understand how difficult life was before. They sort of think that life before industrialization was this happy, bucolic. Uh, existence where uh, you know you you got to milk the cow in the morning and you got to pet the sheep in the evening and uh, food was just just magically materialized and heating and cold and yeah so it's anyway um i'm getting sidetracked but i'm i'm still a believer partly because i grew up in a world which had very little um by you know looking looking at the west and, and and seeing how much how much uh, the Western people have accomplished, it it fills me with tremendous um, uh, joy and happiness. Well, one yeah, one this is a good segue to yeah, we're getting close to the end of our time together. But at the top of the show, you talked about the fact that um, as population grows, so does um, I guess our productivity, and so does the abundance of the resources we use. So we uh, get richer and richer with more and more people. Uh, and your advice is, boy, you know. Go out there and, and um, prosper and uh, have uh, lots more people uh, that should excite grandparents, uh, grandmothers everywhere that we're encouraging them to go out and have as many uh, babies as possible. But but more people is is necessary, but not sufficient. In other words, uh, the next uh, Steve Jobs or Newton or Einstein is out there, but it's not enough just to be out there. They have to have some measure of freedom. Uh, otherwise, they may be stuck in a in a village uh, with no education, no no communication. Share with our listeners, beyond more people and uh, on this infinitely abundant planet, what else do we need besides more people? Uh, just to quickly backtrack, um, obviously, as a, as a classical liberal, I sort of feel that people should have as many uh, children as they want. The point of the book is to tell people if you are concerned about running out of resources and you are making your decisions about family size based on that, then you should you don't have to do that. In other words, we are not going to run out of resources. Uh, the future is most likely to be better than the past, and therefore, you know, have it, have as many babies as you want. If you wanted to um, take a utilitarian perspective on that, and of course, the more people you have, the more years of happiness and the more life years you have. That that's that's good in and of itself as well. Um, but yes, um, the, the 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 basic equation in superabundance it's population times freedom. Population is important because if you don't have human beings, you don't have new ideas, you don't have innovation, you don't have uh, productivity gains, and therefore increases in standards of living. But clearly, population is not the only thing that matters. If it was, then China would be the most prosperous country for the last two thousand years because they've been the most populous country for the last two thousand years. So you need to have freedom. Um, freedom, uh, most importantly, to speak, to to think, to speak, to publish, to associate, to exchange ideas, but also economic freedom. You need to be able to implement your ideas, your inventions and your innovations in the marketplace and see uh, which inventions swim and which sink. Very important that government shouldn't be picking uh, winners and losers in the marketplace. Very important that the price mechanism the autonomy of the price mechanism should be preserved so that we know which inventions and innovations are actually useful and which are useless. So freedom is is very important. Uh, you know, if Steve Jobs 
this father wasn't able to move from Syria to the United States, uh, we might never have gotten apples. So, right. yeah. Uh, here we are on, on two apples, I think. Um, so again, we're at the end of the show. Um, uh, your uh, conclusions are, are, are very, very powerful. Um, do you see, uh, again, the, the, the world is, uh, we just passed 8 billion people, I think, last week. Uh, congratulations, mankind. Um, and we seem somewhat free and getting freer. Um, your book doesn't suggest that it's inevitable that we all just become more prosperous and infinitely abundant. Uh, there are things that could, pros- uh, could derail this trend that has persisted over the last 200 years. What do you see, again, briefly at the end of the show? What should we wary of? What, what could um, uh, throw us off track and perhaps plunge us into the wrong direction away from abundance? Yeah, I mean, there have been previous efflorescences of prosperity, be it in ancient Rome or um, Song China, um, you know, the medieval uh, Italian states, and they eventually got snuffed out. Um, the, the, the Italian city-states like Venice and also Song China uh, remind us that elites play a very important role in either enhancing or destroying innovation and therefore destroying uh human well-being if an elite uh like um in the 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 ming dynasty uh in china they decided to basically cut themselves off from the rest of the world they decided to shut down their economic growth because they perceived economic growth to be destabilizing to the society we are seeing something very similar with xi in china right now where he's explicitly committed to destroying innovation uh economic innovation and economic growth because he believes that it's destabilizing to the control of the Communist Party over the Chinese state. Um, so, so the elites could snuff it out. Uh, something similar is happening in Europe right now, where the European elite got so enamored with green energy and net zero that they have basically destroyed their economic growth and are in the process of destroying their societies by abolishing access to, to cheap energy. So what do we need? Um, first of all, we need uh, freedom of speech so that you are able to t- tell your government what you are doing is a mistake. Uh, you can call me a denier. Uh, you can call me all sorts of names, but I should still be allowed to say that uh, uh, the, the the green agenda, which you currently have, I'm not against green agenda as a as a rule, but the, the current green agenda can lead only to a societal destruction and therefore freedom of speech is very important the other thing which is very important is um, freedom of the marketplace uh once again um uh, once governments start to pick winners and losers in the marketplace that's not a good way of of encouraging economic growth so so that's important and lastly i would say it's this anti-humanism anti-natalism which we are seeing amongst, amongst some elites um um, in the New York Times, Washington Post, um, uh, the stories about how how we should limit uh, number of people on the planet and we should limit their consumption. Um, this is a deeply anti-human message uh, with which I fundamentally disagree. And this nexus, which is appearing in Western democracies between people who believe in degrowth, meaning not just lower economic growth rates, but actually lower economic smaller economy overall and these same people have the power to bring it about by restraining our innovation our energy consumption 
And the same people are also the ones who are writing the articles and reading the articles about how human beings are a problem for the planet. Um, it's a small sliver of society, I suspect, but they have a huge impact on how people around the world perceive the world. And if they can scare us into basically stop breeding, stop innovating, stop using energy and embrace poverty, then the world's future will be very dark indeed. Indeed. Well, I wanted to end on a more positive view, but uh, that's where we have it. Uh, you've been very generous with your time. I appreciate it. I think it's an absolute pleasure. But also, that's why we are here to push back against that. This is the environmentalism is just the last uh, iteration of anti-liberal, anti-humanist ideologies that have come before. This is not new. Um, just like Hayek and Mrs. had to fight fascism and communism and Nazism um, and, uh, you know, Jefferson and Burke had to fight against feudalism and aristocracy. We have to fight against uh, extreme apocalyptic environmentalism. That's our job. And I think that we are going to win in the end. So that's the positive spin on things. Well, I, I agree. We just uh, did a show uh, with scientists who effectively said, look, uh, climate related deaths uh, have been coming down for the last hundred years, though we've been warming. Uh, there's no reason to expect it. they wouldn't continue to decline as we adapt, uh, we, we, become, we become wealthier and therefore more resilient and therefore the, the future is brighter regardless of, of what climate uh, uh, changes happen to us. Uh, and we have to remain optimistic that human beings are and human ingenuity is the greatest power in the universe. So uh, I hope that's a good message for our listeners. Very good one. All right. Thank you very much, Marion. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. This has been another episode of Hubwonk. If you enjoyed today's episode, there are several ways to support Hubwonk and Pioneer Institute. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your iTunes podcatcher. If you want to help make it easier for others to find us, it would be great if you offer a five-star rating or a favorable review. We're always grateful if you want to share Hubwonk with friends. If you have ideas or suggestions or comments from me about topics for future Hubwonk episodes, you're welcome to email me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwalk.